Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading a passage different than what's in your bulletin. So I'm actually going to be reading from Exodus chapter 2, reading verses 23 through 25. These are the words of God. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word, open our ears and our hearts that we might hear the truth preached and believe. We ask that you would not let your word return to you void, but that you would change and nourish us by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as has become our custom after VBS week, which was wonderful, by the way, thank you again to all of those that volunteered during the week and before the week leading up to it. Um, It was really encouraging and exciting to see all of those kids and families and churches represented there. So thank you for all of your labors for that. Um, As has become our custom after VBS week, then I have the opportunity to preach something related to what we were studying over the course of the week. And this uh, sermon is not, in some ways, is not directly tied to the specifics of what we were studying, and um, we're not going to go in detail into the 10 plagues here, although we did throughout the rest of the week, and you can ask the kids about it. I'm sure they'd like to share, share what they learned with you. Um, but what I want to focus your attention on this morning is, and for us to meditate on, is God's covenant loyalty. Um, as we see in the story of the Exodus, God's covenant loyalty. When the book of Exodus begins, the narrative quickly moves to the time after the patriarchs had died. So after um, Joseph and his brothers have died in Egypt, and then the children of Israel are enslaved by the Egyptians. This is the context then for the birth of Moses and the ten plagues that are brought against Pharaoh and against Egypt. Israel was in Egypt and was afflicted by the Egyptians, just like God had told Abraham that they would be. So in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham. This is the same uh, time when God comes to Abraham, and he tells him that he's going to have uh, descendants that are as numerous as the stars. In that that same time when God comes to Abraham, he tells him that his descendants are going to dwell in a land that is not theirs, and that they will be afflicted. This is fulfilled then when Israel is in Egypt. They're afflicted for a very long time. And God um, told Abraham that he would deliver them out of that land, out of the land that did not belong to them, and then he would bring them to the land of Canaan. In fact, as we read this passage at the end of Exodus chapter 2, we see that God's promises to and his covenant with Abraham are the reason that God gives for why he delivers Israel from Egypt. The reason that God brings Israel out of Egypt is simply and primarily because he remembered his covenant with Abraham. So I'd like to spend time meditating on this and what this means in the context of Scripture and then what it means for us particularly today. Pharaoh afflicted the people of Israel because he feared them as they multiplied and grew in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh at first uh, begins to try to stop their growth and their uh, 
multiplying and their growth in might by enslaving them. He begins, he thinks they're, they're going to be, uh, they, they're growing strong in the land of Egypt. What if one of our enemies comes and uh, the Israelites or the Hebrews decide to revolt against Egypt? That would be very bad for us. And so he decides to enslave them, to tamp down their uh, expansion and their power. This doesn't work very well. God tells us um, in Exodus chapter 1, in his providence, that the more that Pharaoh oppressed them, the more they grew. So it didn't work very well for Pharaoh. So then he tries to cut off their future strength. He's unable to really stifle them just by enslaving them, and so he begins to cut off their future, commanding that the newborn sons should be killed or drowned in the Nile. Pharaoh is interested in stopping this, the power of Israel, and so he does so by attacking their future, and particularly by means of killing the newborn sons. So the Israelites were put to hard, forced labor, and their babies were slaughtered. Moses was born in the midst of this, and by God's providential hand, he is spared. Again, I'm not going to go into all the details of these stories right now. Although he is adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh and he is raised in Pharaoh's house, he ends up fleeing Egypt. So Moses is spared from the, uh, the knife of Pharaoh, from being drowned in the Nile. He's spared from this judgment, this oppression. And he grows up in Pharaoh's house. And yet we're told um, in Exodus and then more specifically later on in Scripture that Moses never forgot who his people were. And in fact, he was... Uh, knew in some sense that God had raised him up and called him to deliver the Hebrew people. And he tries to sort of get things going and the Israelites are not interested. They're not ready for it. Uh, Stephen tells us this in, in the book of Acts. They're not ready for him. And so Moses has to flee Egypt. He flees Egypt to the land of Midian. And he's there for quite some time. He's there for about 40 years. When he, after he settles in the land of Midian, the text tells us, and this is the text that we read uh, this morning, that the cries of the Israelites in Egypt, because of their bondage, came up to God, and he heard them. One commentator points out that uh, it's striking that it says that the Israelites cried out because of their bondage, and the cries came up to the Lord, and he heard them. There, there seems to be something missing there. The Israelites are not, we're, at least we're not told explicitly, that they cried out to God. They simply cry out because of their bondage. And that cry comes up to the Lord and he hears them. But we're not told that they cry out to God. This is, this is important and we'll see why in just a moment. God hears their cries and it's then when he hears their cries, he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was then that he looked on the Israelites and then that he acknowledged them. He acknowledged them not because of their cries. He acknowledged them because of his promises to Abraham. We find out later in the scriptures, however, that Pharaoh's oppression was not the only bondage that the Israelites were in at this time. Shortly after they are led out of Egypt by Moses, uh, this, is, this comes from the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus chapter 17. I'll just read this for you. Leviticus 17 in verse 7, we're told that the Lord tells the Israelites that they should no more make sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This is immediately after they have left Egypt. 
This is not God speaking to something new that is going on in Israel. This is while Moses is on Mount Sinai, God is delivering to him the law. And God says, part of my law is you can't sacrifice to demons anymore. Okay, so why, why is this an instruction for the Israelites? Why do they need this instruction? Later, at the end of the book of Joshua, so this is after, in terms of the history of Israel, this is after Israel has spent the 40 years in the wilderness. They're about to now go into the land of Canaan. I'm sorry, this is after they've actually gone into the land of Canaan. They've already conquered the land of Canaan, and Joshua is giving his final exhortation to the people before Joshua dies. This is also when Joshua gives his well-known, as for me and my house, charge. And it's in this context that Joshua calls on the people to fear and serve the Lord and to put away the gods that their fathers served in Egypt. Joshua tells the people of Israel, who are all a new generation. Remember, the, the first generation all dies in the wilderness. This is a new generation of Israelites. They've gone in, they've conquered the land of Canaan. And God tells them, put away the gods that, you, that your fathers worshipped in Egypt. Ezekiel Prophet Ezekiel prophesying um, when Jerusalem is under siege by Babylon, I think makes it most clear. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 20. I'm going to jump into sort of the middle of this uh, discourse between the Lord and Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 5. This is God speaking about what had happened previously in Israel's history. history. Ezekiel 20, verse, beginning in verse 5. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Okay, so God reveals himself to them. He sends Moses to them and he tells them, tell the Israelites, I am who I am has sent you. And he's revealing himself as Yahweh, the Lord God. And he's saying, I'm going to deliver you and bring you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 7. Then I said to them, each of you, throw away the abominations which are before his eyes. And do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Therefore I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. Okay, to paraphrase this, God is saying that when I came and revealed myself to the Hebrews, in Egypt, in bondage, I called on them to stop worshiping the idols of Egypt, to stop following Egyptian gods, and they did not obey me. And because of that, I poured out my wrath in my fury upon them. 
But because for the sake of my name, so that my name would not be despised among the Gentiles which, who were there, God then does end up bringing Israel out of Egypt. Do you follow? God, God is saying that, um, to the prophet Ezekiel, the Israelites were in deep in their worship of idols in Egypt. I think, I, I know for, for a long time, I always assumed that reading the book of Exodus, the Israelites cry out to God in their bondage, and they're crying out in repentance, they're crying out for God to deliver them, and then God comes and delivers them. When we look at the rest of Scripture, that's not what Scripture teaches, actually. And in fact, that little piece that we kind of assume is there, their repentance is just, it's just not there in Exodus. We're not told that they didn't do it. We're not told in the beginning chapters of Exodus that they were worshiping those idols, but there's no actual mention of their repentance. And Ezekiel makes it very clear. In Leviticus, the Lord makes it clear, and then Joshua makes it more clear. At the end of Joshua, and Ezekiel, I think, makes it most clear that they were in deep in their idolatry while in Egypt. This, I think, um, sheds a lot of light on some of the details that Scripture includes regarding the ten plagues. Here, here are two things in particular that, um, that this makes more sense of. When you read some of the accounts of Scripture where they're looking back on the ten plagues, it says time and again that God was um, bringing these plagues to destroy Egypt and to destroy the gods of Egypt. We're actually told that a number of different times in Scripture as, as um, Moses and others are looking back on what God did in Egypt. He's making war against the gods of Egypt. And if we understand that God's people are in the midst of idolatry there, that makes a lot more sense why God would be interested in taking down the idols of Egypt. Why does God uh, reveal himself to his people in such a way that he dem he's demonstrating that he is so much more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. In our VBS week, we looked at how many of the different plagues are directly tied to different Egyptian idols. Just one, for example, the ninth plague, plague of darkness, one of the primary gods of Egypt was Ra, the sun god, who was also in some form in Egyptian mythology embodied in the pharaoh. And God says, Ra is no god, I can take him out, three days of darkness, no problem. God is interested in showing, demonstrating his power that is far greater than the Egyptian idols. But why? Well, it's in part because his people are worshiping the Egyptian idols. They've given themselves over to this idolatry. Here's another interesting uh, detail that is not explained in Exodus, but makes more sense when we think of these things together. The first three plagues... Um, that God brings against Egypt, God sends them indiscriminately on all the land of Egypt. And God sends these three plagues. When he turns the Nile, all the water to blood. When he sends uh, frogs throughout all the land and saturates the land with frogs. When he sends all the lice and they cover everything. These th three initial plagues, God gives indiscriminately over the land of Egypt. In, which means that the Israelites were included in suffering in those plagues. It's not until the fourth plague, you can see this in Exodus chapter 8, verses 20, verse 22, where God begins to make a difference. He says, I will make a difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And then thereafter, 
the fourth through the ninth through the tenth plagues are all directed against Egypt and not Israel. God actually makes exceptions and, and protections for Israel after that. But why? Why does God bring these chastisements against Israel, against his own people? Well, Ezekiel tells us. Ezekiel says, they rebelled against me. After God says, take away those abominations before your eyes. Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. They rebelled against me and they would not obey me. We see this when Moses comes to the people. Initially, they, they believe that he's sent from God. They worship. They're excited. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, no way. You can't leave, uh, you can't leave Egypt. You people are lazy. And he increases their labor. And the people's response to this is to then reject Moses. They rebel against God. They don't follow Moses out. They don't leave. They rebel against him and reject God's prophet. Ezekiel tells us that this was in some way tied to their idolatry as well. But God says, I will, so he says, I will pour out my wrath on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. That's why God brings these three plagues against the Israelites. But why does God stop? If the, if the Israelites are knee-deep in their idolatry, why does God stop bringing these plagues against them? God says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 20 verse 9, I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. God had promised that he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. God had promised to Abraham that he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. And if God was not going to bring this to pass, and if instead he was going to bring this total judgment on the Israelites, just like he brought it on the Egyptians, he would be breaking his promise to Abraham. And so for his namesake, God stayed his hand, brings three plagues of chastisement on the Israelites, and then makes a distinction. That distinction that God makes, that sparing that he brings upon them is because of his promise to Abraham. God was merciful to Israel. He doesn't give them the judgment that they deserve along with Egypt. The Israelites deserved every plague that the Egyptians got. But God makes a distinction for his namesake because he had given a promise to Abraham that he would deliver them. He was merciful to Israel because of his word to Abraham. His justice was then satisfied, for the time being, by the blood of the Passover lamb. This is why they had to use, sacrifice the Passover lamb, put the blood on the door, and the, on the, on the door lintel and the posts, so that when God came to bring judgment, the final judgment on, Israel, or on Egypt, and kill all of the firstborn in the homes, Israel was spared. They were spared by the blood of the lamb. But we know, as we look through the rest of um, uh, of the Old Testament history, that that blood was insufficient. That blood did not spare them ultimately. It spared them for the time being, but it didn't spare them ultimately because they have to make that sacrifice again a year later and all these other sacrifices that they have to make. The author of Hebrews makes this point very clearly that the, the priests have to offer sacrifices daily in the temple 
in order to atone for sin. And that shows that the sacrifices that they make do not ultimately atone for sin. Only the blood of Jesus fully and completely atones for our sin. So God's justice is temporarily satisfied by the blood of the Passover lamb. And then his grace is made clear as he brings them out of their bondage in Egypt. He brings them out of their bondage in Egypt completely undeserving. Again, we're not told through the Exodus account, the the, the account of the ten plagues, at any point that the Israelites turned and repented of their idolatry. Maybe the one glimpse we get of this is at the end when they finally listen to Moses and they prepare the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. It does tell us that they worshiped God. Maybe it's then after seeing all these ten plagues, knowing that God was giving them a way out so that their firstborn would not die by means of the blood of the lamb. Perhaps then they repented. But God brings them out of Egypt not deserving it. It is purely his grace. God regards the children of Israel not because they were following him. God looks at Israel and notices them and regards them and acknowledges them not because they were following after him, not even because they had cried out to him in repentance. God takes notice of Israel because he remembers his promise to Abraham. He acknowledges them not because of their words, but because of his words. He takes notice of them, not because of what they're saying in repentance, but because of what he had said hundreds of years ago to Abraham. And this, of course, for us is a picture of the gospel. The New Testament authors make this clear over and over again. Let me give you two examples from Ephesians chapter 2. What very well-known verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God grants salvation purely by his grace. Purely by his grace. He pulls Israel out of bondage to Egypt, out of bondage to idols, purely by his grace. And that pictures to us then how he brings us out of our bondage to sin and idols, purely by his grace. Paul also says in Romans chapter 5, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God saves sinners. God saves idolaters. God saves, Jesus tells us, only those who cannot save themselves. 
Once God has saved you, then he does give you works to do. Paul goes on to say this in Ephesians 2 as well. After saying that you've been saved by grace through faith, he says that um, God has also set before you works that you are to walk in. Things that you are to do, that God has prepared ahead of time for you. There are things for us to do, having been justified by the blood of Christ. Things for us to walk in. This is, this is the difference between what we call justification and sanctification. Justification is God declaring a person to be righteous before him. And the only means by which God can do that and his justice be satisfied is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's justification. Jesus' righteousness applied to sinners and their sin applied to him on the cross. But alongside of that is sanctification, where God calls us to grow in holiness because he is growing us in holiness to bring us to that perfection, that, that completeness, that maturity that he is going to then bring to himself in the end. That's sanctification. And so there are works that God has given us to do, things that God has called us to walk in and to follow him in. But this stands on, this, this working that God has called us to do is only possible if we are first standing on the justification that we've received in Christ. Once the blood, uh, Paul makes this point in um, 1 Corinthians 5. Once the blood of the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ has been applied to you, you've been declared to be righteous, then, then you are to actively purge out the old leaven of your sinful heart. Paul calls to mind the, the Passover feast in which the Israelites were supposed to, in the first Passover, when God, um, right before God brings the judgment on Egypt to kill the firstborn, God says, you need to take all the leaven out of your house and only eat unleavened bread for this feast. All the leaven must be purged out, must be taken away. And Paul likens this to the, the old leaven of our sinful nature that must be purged out of us but it's purged out of us because the Passover lamb has already been slain for us. Our justification, our sanctification are intimately tied together. Having believed, and we should see this though, we should remember that when God saves someone, it is only because he is keeping his covenant promise. And the question is, who is he keeping this covenant promise to, ultimately? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to one. We might turn to a couple other passages here, but one just briefly. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll just read verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God chose all who he would save. This, this is the doctrine of election. God chose all that he would save in Christ, making a promise to Christ. That everyone that I give you, you won't lose. God made a covenant promise. The Father made a covenant promise with his son before the foundations of the world. That everyone that he would save, Christ would lose none of them.
God saves someone, and he does so because he is keeping his covenant promise to the Son from before the foundations of the world. Again, a picture we have for that is the promise that God made to Abraham before Israel's in Egypt that he's going to deliver his people from that land. But there's, this goes even deeper, I think. Having believed the gospel by means of grace, we must then also believe the promise that God gave to Abraham. God gave promise to the son that, that those whom he would save of them, the son would lose none of them. He elected them before the foundations of the world. But God also gave promises to Abraham. And these promises are that God would be Abraham's God. This, this is the promise. This is the promise that is the foundation of salvation. Right? When, when God saves somebody, what is he saying? He's saying, I will be your God. And you will be mine. And what's striking is when God brings this to Israel... In Deuteronomy 5, and again in Deuteronomy 7, God says, I am going to be your God to a thousand generations. I'm going to be God to you and to your children for a thousand generations. And Peter picks up on this in Acts chapter 2, when he gives his first sermon after the resurrection of Christ, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out, at the end of his sermon, Jesus, or Peter says to the crowd, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. What is that promise? It is the promise that he is your God. And he will be God to you and to your children to a thousand generations. Okay, so this is kind of big picture theology in large respects, right? Covenant theology, understanding, thinking about election, thinking about God's covenant promises. There's actually a very practical side to this, though. Understanding this grace of God, and, and that's what we're talking about, this grace of God. This grace of God that he chooses to save someone while they're still a sinner, when they have nothing, absolutely nothing, to prove their worth before him. Someone once said, the only thing I bring to God in salvation is my sin. The only thing I bring to God is my sin. There's nothing that we can bring before him apart from him working in us first. And understanding this grace, this foundational grace, is necessary and powerful for casting off the sin that so easily ensnares us. Understanding the grace of God is necessary and powerful for casting off the sin that beset you this last week. For, under, for um, casting off the sin that is going to ensnare you, that you will be tempted to fall into, that you will be tempted to give into this week. What, what do we mean by sin? Of course, we mean any disobedience to God's word. which we could also just simply call idolatry. Because if I'm disobeying something that God has said, then I'm thinking that there's some other being whose words are more important than the Lord's. Whether it's me or some other God, someone else. 
Understanding this grace of God is necessary and powerful for casting off your idolatry that you slip back into. If God is truly as gracious as all this, as everything that we're talking about, then here's how it helps. You can be completely and brutally honest before God with all of your sin. You can be completely and brutally honest before God like you've never been to anybody else about that sin that besets you. That sin that you don't cast off. That sin that you harbor. If God is not as gracious as all of this, then it's terrifying to be brutally honest with him. It's terrifying to come into his presence with the threat of his displeasure. And and that's the reason why we don't confess our sins to God. We don't confess our sins to God because we don't believe that he is really as gracious as all that. So, but I, but I know that I need to confess my sins, so I'll, 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 I'll confess it in part. Maybe the really obvious parts. Or I'll confess it in such a way that I make it sound really, it's not really as bad as I could say it. I'm going to excuse it a little. I'm going to, I'm going to use other euphemisms to describe it, other than what God calls it. We do this, we excuse our sin, we justify it, we hide it in different ways because we don't actually believe that God is as gracious as his word says he is. This is the God who brought idolatrous Israel out of their well-deserved slavery, their well-deserved slaughter of their infants. simply because he remembered his promise. That's the God that you serve. Why would you hide anything from him? Why would you hold back any of your sin from him? If God is as truly as gracious as all this, then not only can you be brutally honest before him, but you can be brutally open with him about the most shameful things. One of the things that keeps us, one of the other things that keeps us from confessing our sin is our sense of shame. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to admit truthfully that I said those things. It's shameful to admit that I thought those things. It's shameful to admit that I did those things. It's shameful to admit how self-centered we are. To truly admit it. It's shameful. And it ought to be shameful. But if God is truly as gracious as his word says then don't let that shame keep you from him. 
We're told in Hebrews 12, Jesus went to the cross despising the shame. One of the most shameful ways for a human being to die is on a cross. Jesus took it gladly for the joy set before him. And not only that, he took all of the shame of your sin. We're familiar with the understanding that Jesus died for my sins on the cross and he paid the penalty for those sins. Do you understand also that he died and buried the shame of your sin? What more shameful place could there be than the eternal, perfect, holy Son of God covered in the sins of the world. Is there anything more shameful than that? He despised it all. Looking ahead for the joy that was set before him, that joy which was you, his inheritance, promised to him before the foundations of the earth that he knew his father was going to give to him because God is a faithful God who keeps his word. This is the God that you serve. If God is truly as gracious as all this, then you can be brutally honest with him about your sin. You can be completely open with him about your shame and he will take it. Lay it at the foot of the cross. The more we embrace God's grace, then the more we despise our sin. Understanding, seeing, grasping, meditating on, dwelling with the grace of God is the best tool that God has given to his people for learning to hate their sin. Because we understand that it's our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. It's because of that sin this morning when I snapped at my kids because we were late getting out the door on the way to church that sent Jesus to the cross. It's my sin this week when I was being disrespectful to my husband. It's my sin this week when I disobeyed my parents, when I lied to them, when I lied to my boss, when I was unjust in my dealings, when I was lustful in my heart, it was my sin this week that sent Jesus to the cross. And God says, I forgive you. You're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. If I've chosen you from before the foundations of the world, if I have saved you and I've placed the blood of Jesus upon you, then none of that keeps you from me. There is nothing that gets you to hate your sin more than that grace. The more we understand God's grace, the more we despise our sin, the more we flee from it, the more we cast it off. Do you taste the grace of God? If you taste the grace of God, then your sin becomes so much more distasteful. And you can't help but spit it out. I want to close with one, answering one final question. 
We're talking about God's covenant promises. We're talking about God's covenant loyalty, God keeping his word, God's election. The obvious question then is, how do I know that this grace is for me? How do I know that this grace is mine? That this God is really my God? There's not a list of names that we can check to see if God elected us before the foundation of the world. In God's wisdom, he doesn't give us that. God knows, he's, he's got the list. He knows perfectly everyone that he is going to save. Scripture teaches this. But he knows this in his infinite wisdom and his sovereignty. And that is not for us. We live in finite bodies. We live in space and in time. And that knowledge would destroy us. This does not mean, however, that we cannot know whether we are saved. And so again, this question, how do I know that this grace is for me? There's many things to consider regarding our assurance of salvation. And I want to leave you with just one. Just one to take with you this week. Is this grace for you? Jesus said that his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Do you hear the call of Jesus? Do you hear the call of Jesus? He says, repent and believe. So what are your idols? What are the things that you serve and that you hold on to instead of pursuing Christ? Instead of pursuing Christ with everything. What are your idols? What are the idols that God needs to come and smash? Just like he smashed the idols of Egypt. What is the sin that so easily ensnares you? That sin that we lightly call besetting sins, as if to excuse them and and make it sound like it's okay that they beset us. What What are the sins that so easily ensnare you? Do you hear the call of Jesus? Consider the grace of God. Leave behind your idols. This is true if you've never turned to Christ before. And this is true if you've been walking with Christ for decades. Leave behind your idols and follow him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the promise that you give us in Christ, that you will be our God. Thank you for delivering us from bondage to sin. Teach us to believe your promises to us and to our children as we continue to grow in sanctification and battle against the sin that ensnares us. Father, we ask you with trembling hearts to smash our idols. Show us how you are far greater, far more powerful, far more merciful, far more gracious than anyone or anything else we might serve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.